Um, I want to do this, okay, as, I, as I'll do every so often. I need you to just trust me. I'm asking you to close your eyes. It's a quick little exercise that'll get you to feel what I think we need to feel in order to get what God's trying to give, right? So close your eyes, if you would, and just picture where you live, okay? You live in a house in a certain neighborhood and so on. Now, you live in that house, and here's what I need you to picture. You have no car, no access to a car. And by the way, for the purposes of this, there is no Uber, okay? So you have no car. Now, how much more difficult has your life just become knowing that? What, what, you know, how, what's it take for you to go to work? Just imagine, how far do you have to walk to get to the bus or the train or whatever it is that might be able to get you there? How long does it take you in terms of transfers and so on? I know a lot of commute, people commute using public transportation, but you get to drift. A lot of us don't, and you can just drive straight to work versus having to go through a much longer process. Now, here's another one. Just getting groceries, coming back from work. What would you have to do differently if you had no car and you were trying to pick up some groceries, or you were just taking off from your house to go get groceries. What do you have to do now that you have no car? Just think about this. You can't buy the amount of stuff you'd normally buy because you've got to carry it home. So you don't, you don't get to do that. Let's think about this. Um, uh, you want to go to a friend's house, right? And you want to spend some time with them and everything else. What does it take now to get to their house? How much longer? Instead of it just being a 15-minute drive, what is it going to take to actually get to some neighborhood that isn't close to a bus stop, okay, or a medical emergency? Now, in this case, I'm going to let you call a cab, but it's not an Uber because cabs take longer to get there, and how long is it going to take in a medical emergency? You see what I mean? Okay, you get that? Okay, so having, having kind of lived in that moment, keep your eyes closed now, and now I want you to picture this. Somebody's coming up to you and they're giving you the keys to a really nice functional car. We're not talking a Lamborghini. We're talking like a Mercedes or a Range Rover SUV. A really nice car with a great jam and sound system, okay? But the point is, is it's incredibly practical. It'll hold all the kids you ever need to. It'll hold all the people that you need to on the weekends. If you're doing a project and you need to buy, buy some lumber, you can put the seats down and throw a bunch of junk in there, move some furniture. You catch the drift. That's super functional. You can go to Costco instead of having to go to your neighborhood groceries so you can carry it home. Okay, and you can fill the car with boxes full of, you know, stuff that's going to last you for years. Okay? So you get the point. A super functional car. Now, what I want you to do is just think about how much better did your life become due to that one little thing? Do you feel it? Do you feel how much easier it became, how much better it became? And again, it's a nice car, okay? So now open your eyes, and here's what I want to tell you. God has given you the keys to something that is so much better than a car. It's ridiculous. But its practicality in your life is every bit as great, in fact, infinitely greater. He's giving you something incredibly practical in your life that is going to make your life so much better. And you even kind of know when I say what it is, which is later, you're even going to know, yeah, that's true, but the point is, is at the very most... We go out and start the engine every once in a while, but none of us are actually using it. We know that it's there once we find out, but we're not actually using it.
the way that God intended in order to make our life better. Because it almost sounds like something for something else, when in fact it's something for now. So with that bit of a tease, I want to take you to what this is. And Jeff Stevens, that's a, such an awesome, he's one of my threefold guys. You're going to find this out in just one second. And he is just, I, you make me happy. When I'm with you, I am happier as a human being. So uh, pray for the sermon. Pray for another church. Thanks. Lord, we are so grateful to be here today. We're so grateful to be here this morning, to be in your presence. Wow. Sorry, God. Don't know what that was. But I guess you don't want me to pray for you? <laughs> pray for the church? Okay. Well, Lord, uh, we love you. Uh, God, thank you so much for this time. And Lord, we come here with anticipation, anticipation to hear you, to be changed, and to walk away from this a different person, a person that is a little bit closer to what you created us to be, God. We know that every single week, this church changes lives, and it touches us, and Lord, you touch us through this church. So Lord, that's what we want today. We come with anticipation for it. We can't wait to hear what you say. We can't wait to uh, uncover what this vehicle is that you're giving us the keys for. And Lord, uh, we also pray for the church Timberlake. Thank uh, you. Lift up that church, uh, frankly, Amen. because I see a lot of flyers from them. They do a great job advertising. And so Amen. I hope that they do a great job spreading your word, Lord. We love Amen. you in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. 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 Good. Thank you. I love that church. Okay. Now, we're in that very last sort of moments of Jesus' life where he's being confronted by the religious leaders. Last week we saw the Pharisees come to him and ask him that question that is really on everybody's, the common person's mind, which is, should we pay taxes or not? And it seems like the perfect setup because if he says yes, he loses the people. And if he says no, you can't pay taxes, then he gets imprisoned, right? So it seems like the perfect trap, but he gets out of it, of course, just perfectly. And now it's the other guy's turn. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's the other guy's turn now. And there you go. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, apparently, I didn't know this until this last week, but apparently if you grew up in church, which I did not, if you grew up in church, then there's a little nursery rhyme saying out of Sunday school you get, which is the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay. So let me tell you who the Sadducees are. There's an actual very good, to the degree that we know who they are, there's a very good modern-day analogy for who they are because this is almost always in a culture. And that is, think about the families in the Northeast who go back generationally and have enormous amounts of wealth and power collectively. They are the kind of people who can trace their roots back to the Revolutionary War or soon thereafter, and they have been entrenched in the halls of power in Washington and in Wall Street for generation after generation after generation, okay? These people are wealthy, but don't, don't make sure you understand something. They're wealthy, but they're not nouveau riche, which is how they, ref they refer to people like Bill Gates. And, and I mean, Bill Gates comes from a good family, but he's still new rich to the degree that he's rich now. These are families. They don't have houses. They have compounds. They have summer places that they go to and winter places that they go to that they've had for 100 years or more. 
Okay? These are families that go way back and understand something about them. The nouveau riche to them, the kind of people that are rich and flaunting their wealth, partying, getting in tabloids, getting in trouble, Kennedys. These people are de rigueur to them. This stuff should not be done. This is, this is wrong for them to do it. The, these, these wealthy scion families are not, they're under the radar. They, they, they're, they don't want, they're, and being in the paper is a bad thing, okay? Of course, you've got some governors and senators and judges and so on that come out of the families, but even then, you do your job, you keep your head down, and you do things according to what we would call, it's, it's called a Puritan work ethic. And a Puritan work ethic is work hard, do good. Life can throw you some tough curves, but keep your head down, work hard, Hang in there, just keep working, things will work out, okay? Now, because of this, they also have this thing that we also call noblesse oblige, which is to say a noble obligation. They are families that have benefited so greatly from this country that they feel it is their duty to pour back into the country. That's why they're not out partying and doing that kind of stuff. In fact, these families will count amongst their members many military people that went to serve their country. And it would be part of what it is to be part of that kind of thing. And this would be the kind of thing that you do. And then you would go into governmental service. You don't, you know, you do that because the country needs what you have. These are kids that have gone to the best boarding schools generationally. They go to the best universities, which it's easy to get into because buildings are named after you know, certain benefactors and certain people and so on. And they're the kind of people that when they get their jobs, they get jobs because of a phone call. Somebody calls and says, my son, or you know them, and they call you, and they already know you because you summer together on the Hamptons or out on Martha's Vineyard or whatever. And all of a sudden, you've got this very high, important job in government or in business, or in the military, or whatever it is. See what I mean? So here's what I want you to understand. When common people think about Sadducees, we, we don't even, it's, it's, this, this class of people is almost disappearing from America. They are very definitely still there. Don't misunderstand me. But they're being eclipsed by the new money and by new culture, and, and they're being seduced by, you know, shows of wealth and so on. So this whole Puritan work ethic is no longer part of their morality. And the noblesse oblige, they'll still do that, but it's kind of dying. But, but what I want you to see is, is when that was happening and when that's going full tilt, the common person doesn't resent those people. They resent the people who are being stupid that are being spendy, that are showing off. But these are people that are keeping their nose down and they're doing good and they're sacrificial and they're, they're doing good things. You see what I'm saying? Now there is a problem, of course, and the problem has to do with privilege. As I heard someone say about this group of people recently, they said a lot of people are born on thir third base, but they thought they hit a triple to get there. But in fact, they were born there. And so they'll have a mentality about the common person and what they need to do. Now here's where I'm going after, okay? I want you to understand, your culture, the circumstances in which you were brought up, will determine your theology. It'll determine how you think about life, about God, about how things are, about what they are, about all kinds of things. Now understand, the Sadducees, because of their upbringing, they are 
conservative, by the way. We think of the Pharisees as being like um, fundamentalists, and so that would be conservative in modern American parlance. That wouldn't be the case at all here. The Pharisees were actually people that were amongst the people, the common person, and they came from the common person, and they were interacting with people in all the messiness of life. So there's a lot of, gee, you know, God is holy and he wants us to do this and here's what the law is, but how do people up and how do they, and how do they, and so what they're trying to do is to get all of that stuff to match and mix and there's a whole bunch of even grace and things in it. It's not, it's not that they can't be legalistic, but you catch the drift. Whereas the conservative in this case means this. It means status quo. Now I want you to think about this because this is the way it was in the temple and this is the way it is in the American form of government that our founding fathers set up, which came from Europe and has this everywhere you look, this thing. Now watch this. There are two houses in the congressional parts of governments. England has it, we have it. We have the House of Representatives, which is what? The People's House. 435 members, it's a raucous place, it's meant to be a place where ideas are bashed about and pe people are debated and they're done with passion and so on and there's a lot of argument and back and forth and so on and everything else. So this is where the, this is where the people have their will expressed in this give and take amongst the, the ruckhouse and so on, the ruckus of all of this, see that? But then, but then remember, see, the point is that the founding fathers believed as do most political scientists, that people left to the mobs left to their own devices are oftentimes self-destructive. And so there needs to be a restraining influence is how they think about it and how our founding fathers thought about it. And you get the restraining influence from people who have a vested interest in the status quo and have the money and have the power to help execute that kind of restraint. So when we elect senators, we only elect 100 of them. And they're people of more, they're supposed to be more distinguished people. They're supposed to have more rules of decorum. They're supposed to not be ruled by passion. They're supposed to be ruled by principle. And they have a vested interest in keeping the status quo so that things will still change, but they will change more slowly. Do you see it? So this is the type of person that the Sadducee is. And, and it does, in fact, have its place. But I want you to think about something now. What I've said is, the way that you were brought up is what determines your theology. If you were brought up in generational wealth to the point that you have compounds, not houses, to where you have servants and people that wait on you, to where you have people that serve the family interests, and maintain the wealth and, and maintain the power structures and so on and all this kind of stuff. If you have that kind of thing, here's how you tend to think about life. You don't worry so much about eating. You don't worry so much about where your shelter is going to come from. In other words, you don't live where the common folk do. You live in your principles. Somebody has to maintain principles. This is the group of people that thinks that the common person isn't very smart, can be ruled by passion, can do bad things that are ultimately self-destructive. So you're the one that acts as the restraining influence. Now, I'm not 
arguing for this. Don't misunderstand me. I'm trying to let you know who the Sadducees were and who the Pharisees were. So the point is that the Sadducees, they're coming from a place. See, the Sadducees are rich and generationally rich even under Rome. When the Romans came in, they knew something. Don't do away with the, these kinds of people because these kinds of people will have a vested interest in making sure the boat doesn't get rocked too much. You see it? They still may hate you. They still may resent that you're on top of them. They would rather be on top themselves, but they're not going to rock the boat too much because they have a vested interest in keeping their wealth and their position and their status. And for everything to go to hell in a handbasket threatens them. Do you see it? Now watch. We're talking about theology and where it comes from. The Sadducees, because of the privilege that they have, and they're not having to worry about all of these other things, where they are is they're saying, these, things, these ideas that the common people have about angels, that's stupid, that's fable, that's myth. This whole idea of heaven, that's silliness. You just can't, you know, you, you have a hard life, and so you've got to make up this thing about a resurrection where you get to be with God and it's all better. See, it just helps it helps you deal with the hardness of your own life. And the Sadducee, the conservative would say, and I'm talking about conservative in America, I'm talking about the conservative impulse would say, no, you need to be a realist about things. There's no mythology thing. There's no life after death. There's no this kind of thing. There's no heaven. There's no any of this kind of stuff. They did believe in God, okay? But they didn't believe in this, all these other things that they thought to be the construct of weak minds or of desperate lives trying to find something to make them feel better about their lot in life. Do you see that? So you get the Sadducees over here saying, there's no heaven, there's no angels, there's no, there's no life after death. And then you get the common people saying, there's something better than what I'm experiencing. There's something to look forward to. Got it? Now in that regard, Here's what the Sadducees come to him and say, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to point out how silly Jesus really is because they're the educated ones, they're the smart ones, they're the ones that know. And so here's what they do. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law. They're trying to point out how just logically inconsistent he is. Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow, have a child, who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. See, and they're thinking self-satisfied, smug, SOBs, you know, we got him. This is just stupid. You know, and you know, okay. So here's how Jesus answers. Jesus replied, marriage is for people on earth. In the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are the children of God and the children of the resurrection. Now, I wanna, I wanna show you to get it deeper. Matthew, in talking about this exact incident, adds a little more detail and you get the tenor of how Jesus was talking to them. You are deceived. People who went to Harvard don't like to be told that they're deceived. 
Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't really understand anything. Let me paraphrase this to sort of get it right. You are ignorant. You are talking about something that you don't know anything about. That's the definition of ignorance. People who went to Yale and Princeton hate to be called ignorant. You think you are right, but actually you have no idea about the things of God beyond this realm. You are taking your logic and extending it as if it applies, and it does not. That's your problem. And you had every reason to know that because you could have known it if you'd simply believed, read, studied the scriptures. But you made up your own theology based on your own understanding of how life was, and now you're in the wrong place, in your own understanding. And it's having a real effect on how you act, on what you are. Okay? Jesus says, look, there is a heaven. Whether you think there is or not, there is. There are angels, whether you think or so or not. Saved people, those who are, get to go, right? Go to die and go to be with God. And no marriage in heaven. The intimacy of marriage and sex is completely transcended by the intimacy of oneness. And I want to say something here. The thought that I won't be living with Julie in heaven, I struggle with. Because I like her. She may be thinking about it as a nice break. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just had to. <laughs> Certain truth in it, but hey, you know. But the point is, is I want you to take the most intimate moment of your marriage, which may have to do with sex because of the intimacy of sex. Making love, we call it. But I want you to just think of the most intimate moments that you've ever had with a spouse and understand that what heaven is is that multiplied so much that it's not sexual at all. It's the really good stuff of oneness. That's what's happening in heaven. There's an intimacy, a oneness with every single person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're all like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are one, and we are all one. It is not the couple going home and talking with each other because you guys understand each other. It's everybody knowing everybody else so completely and utterly, beautifully, wonderfully. We are made to be one with one another. And when we are one with one another, it is, excuse me, but orgasmically wonderful. And I want to take that word now and say, heaven is not sexual. But it is this wonderful, 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 wonderful feeling that sex points to. You see it? So this is the thing that, that Jesus is going after, and this is what God is saying through Paul when he says, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And let me say something. If you're letting your circumstances, your culture, your past, and so on, dictate what your theology is, then you're looking back instead of transcendent. You're looking down rather than up. When you look up, here's what we know about the things that are coming. You don't have any idea what they are, but take all the good things that you know and multiply them by a billion and you're starting to get an idea. You see it? 
In fact, look, here's what we're saying, and here's what I think God really wants to get across to us today. You have to live the whole of your life in the light of eternity, in the truth of true, sound, good theology. I've said this before, it bears the saying again, I'm not patting myself on the back, I'm so far from the fullness of what I want this to be, but let me tell you something, I do not live my life because of what I want. I have not moved in decades to some place that I wanted to move to. I did not want to move to the Northwest. I am thankful to God for the beauty of the Northwest. I am thankful to God for the pleasant places that he has planted my feet. My gosh, I have so much to be thankful to him for, and I absolutely love the Northwest, but do be clear about something. It is not where I would choose to live. Most people live where they live because they choose to live there. I haven't lived where I wanted to live for since I was probably 28 years old. In fact, I'm not sure that I didn't go back further than that. I've only lived the places that God told me to go to do the things that God told me to do. That's where I've gone and that's why I've gone there. And that's what I've done with everything in my life. When I wake up every day, I've said this before, I don't know how true it is anymore because I do like it here and I love the people here and so on, but I'm a missionary here. When I wake up, I don't think of what do I want to do today because I love living here and I chose to live here and oh, by the way, I get to pastor too. I think of I'm here for a purpose and a reason and what am I supposed to be doing for that purpose and reason? Now, let me make it clear. I make a mistake because I do that too much and I end up overworking and I'm working myself to death and it's bad and I'm working hard at cutting back and just enjoying life here because there's, God wants us to enjoy green pastures and still, still waters too, right? He has that. That's part of the rhythm of life that he has for us where he works it out right. But the bottom line is, is you just have to understand this, and I, just, I say this because I think it's a challenge. I don't live my life the way I would wanna live my life. I don't. I'm not saying I don't do an awful lot of things that I wanna do, because I do. But what I'm saying is, is that underneath all of it is, is I'm living my life because of the way that God is leading me to live my life, and that's what I'm about, and that's what I do. And you all are the beneficiaries or victims of this, because look at, what, look at something that happened in this church. This is a great example of what I'm talking about. I'm on my walk in Hillcrest. I've talked about it before. This is about seven years ago, eight or nine years ago, excuse me. And I'm walking and God tells me discipleship is in the toilet. I don't know what that means. I start asking him what it means. I start understanding he's saying things are going very, very badly. And then eventually he starts to tell me the reason why is because of professionals. We have pastors that we have the money to hire, and they're the ones that are taking on all the responsibilities of all the ministries, and so them I'm discipling like crazy because they're carrying all the weight, but the people aren't carrying the weight, and they're not involved except casually the way that they want to be, and so they're not actually growing in me. And it was only, it was only about a year and a half later that all the statistics started coming out and saying, this is true, you know, when we started finding out some of the stats I used a few weeks ago. But the point is, is when I did that, when I realized he was, what he was saying, which was get rid of all your professionals, okay, as Dave Veach said to me when I told him, this is my boss, he, and he wasn't saying not to do it, he was just telling me something. He says, the reason why pastors have associate pastors is because it makes their life better. He wasn't saying it was the right thing to do, but he was saying it's easier and as I came around that corner down at the very bottom of my walk, and I'm really getting this revelation of these things that God is telling me, and I'm walking down there, the first question I had for him was, or the first thought that I had that came to my mind was, when I really realized, I went, oh my God, I said, God, people don't want to work that hard. And I wanted him to tell me something nice. 
I expected him to answer me, and he did not. He gave me a pregnant pause instead. And I knew exactly what that pregnant pause meant. He went, exactly. That's the problem. We're not engaged. It's a Sunday morning thing. That's what church is. It's Sunday morning. That's what it means to people. It didn't mean that to anybody in the New Testament. Church was a gathering of people that lived their lives together. The kind of things we're trying to accomplish, again, in our communities. These community things that we're doing. Okay? And that's what, he, that's what he means a body to be. Not you get together for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Okay? But you're in each other's lives, helping each other, carrying each other's burdens, lifting each other up, loving on each other, being there for each other, being in each other's lives in a real way that is intimate and real and like it is in heaven as much as we can. See it? So my next question to him was, as I went, God, you know me, I'm not a very good manager. I've already proven that at the church by that time. I'm not a good manager. I won't be able to manage this transition. I'm going to lose my job if I do this, what you're telling me to do. And I, honest to God, can you just come with me for a minute on this? Can you please understand that when I said that, I expected him to give me a nice word. You know, to say, it's okay, Kurt, I'll take care of it. If you do what I say, I'll make it all nice and good. But he didn't again. He left me with a pregnant pause instead, which was quite troubling to me because basically I knew exactly what that pregnant pause meant. And here's what it meant. Yeah, and? So what? Here's the problem. Here's the solution. It doesn't matter what you think. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Are you going to be part of the solution or not? Right? So I'm sitting there and I'm going, this is great, <laughs> you know? And indeed, it's meant a lot of things in this church, hasn't it? There's been a ton of changes that we made in steering teams and now in communities and in discipleship and everything we've done. Every single thing that this church has done has been because of God leading us to do it. It hasn't been because we think about how to run our organization better because most of the decisions that we make run organizations worse. But they do tend to raise people up more. They do tend to put people, and having people coming up here and preach. You want to grow? It's say yes when I ask you. You want to grow? Send me an email and say, I got a sermon. Okay? This is a place that's going to let you preach. Why? Because it's better than me? I think people get tired of hearing me, so I think having a little bit of mix-up is good. Right? Amen. Thank you, Rich. What are friends for? No, honestly, what are friends for? I can't figure it out. <laughs> okay, we get it, right? We get it. Everything we've done. But understand something. It's not just us and me and this church and us. The disciples, what did they do after Jesus? Did any of them just go, you know what? I like fishing, and if people want to know about Jesus, I'm willing to talk to them. Come talk to me. I was with him. Let's just set up a little ministry in this town and let's get people to come in. I'll build a little hotel and make a little money off of that too. And we'll bring people. You see what I'm saying? What did they do instead? You know, you know, we travel now because it's fun to go over to Europe, but you do realize that in that day and age, to travel outside of the boundaries of your own community was dangerous. It was dangerous by the natural elements, and it was dangerous by the fact that there were thieves and laws and rulers and other countries and other cultures and other things, and all of it was dangerous. The people that did that were, were hard people who worked the trade routes and knew the game, 
And now all of a sudden you got some guys go using those same trade routes to go out and spread the gospel. And let's be clear, Judas, so 11 of the 12, 10 of them, all but one of them, die doing this, are martyred doing this, pulled apart by horses, crucified upside down, and so on. Why didn't any of them recant? I, I still think this is one of the biggest proofs that there is in, in all of logic of the truth of Christianity. Why did not one person who saw Jesus alive, and it wasn't just the 11, there were 500. Why did not one person ever recant what they saw? Because they saw it. And it made them understand that there was life after death. It made them understand that this life is just this life. And the thing that was truly more important was the thing after this. That was the eternal thing. That was the real thing. That was the thing that matters and means something that we have to go after. You see what I mean? To, for me to make a compromise in this life in order to save my skin would be to disqualify me from eternity? Bad trade. I'm not going to do that. Right? See, the circumstance they saw Jesus caused them to live differently. They made choices that weren't great for their family or for their enjoyment or for their pleasure or for where they wanted to be. They made choices in the light of eternity, in the light of God, in the light of what he was calling them to do and to be. This is how they lived their lives. This is called discipleship. This is God taking us into ever deeper, richer, better places in him. Okay? In fact, Jesus goes on. Now watch. The Sadducees didn't know it, and we could, we could sort of say, well, you know, given the way that they grew up and everything else, maybe there's some reason for it. But here's the truth. Jesus comes back to him and he says, look, you don't know what you're talking about. You're ignorant. And worse, you shouldn't be ignorant. After a long time, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, back up. I just want you to show you this little story about how important it is to have what we're talking about in your heart, good theology that builds a good life, that builds a God life. Here it goes. After a long time, this is the master that went away and left the talents. The master returned from the trip and called them to give an account of how they'd used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more to do something with, and I did something with it. The master was full of praise. This is who he is. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Come, let's celebrate together. Let me ask you a question right now. Master, you gave me five, and I invested it, and something happened with the weather, and it went bad and everything else, and I lost it. What does the master say? Who is the master? Are you building your theology on the right God? What does the master say if you lost those five talents? Well done, good and faithful servant. Thanks for trying. Let me give you more. You're the kind of person that tries, right? But here's a guy that's built it on the wrong theology. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Now, is that true? Is God harsh? Harvesting crops you didn't plant, planting crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. And look, here's your money back. And the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested... Now look what he's doing right here. He's not saying he's harsh and all this kind of stuff. He's taking the guy at his own words. And he's saying, even by your own definition of who I was, which is completely wrong, 
you still got it wrong. Even if you take that I am that way, if you knew that, um, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank so at least I'd have gotten some interest on it? <laughs> See it? And then he says this. Then he, then he ordered, take the money from this servant, give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. God wants to give everybody an abundance. The problem is us. What it will do to us. If he blesses us, it will often hard times harm us because of who we are. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Your theology matters. It matters. The God that you think is God, if it's the true God, it will motivate you to do things which God, when you are standing before him, will say, well done, good and faithful servant, let's rejoice and have a party. But if you have another image of God in your mind, if you have another kind of theology because of your circumstances, you will end up, what? Having done nothing. Not having honored God, not having done what he wanted. And so again, now, here's Jesus going back again, and he says, but now as to whether the dead will be raised, now look where he goes. He's saying to these Sadducees, you have this theology, I'm telling you it's wrong. First-hand knowledge, I know it's wrong. But let me tell you something. You could have known it if you had just trusted the scriptures. If you had actually read them. If you actually understood them. Can I just say something? Does anybody realize that this is probably the sixth or seventh sermon in a row now? Not just spoken by me. Where reading your scripture has become a major, major focus point of what's going on. We're right at the end of Jesus' life. And what is he saying to us over and over and over again? Get into the word. Get into the Word, get into the Word, get into the Word. Let the Word shape your life. Don't let circumstances or past or your family or anything else shape your life. Let the Word form you. Even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Look, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses is saying, you're the God of. So he is the God of the living, not of the dead, for they are alive to him. Well said, teacher, remarked some of the teachers were scribes that were more from the Pharisees' camp. The Sadducees were being confronted. They were losing. They're not saying good job. Okay? But now I want you to see the actual text. God said to Moses, Moses has come to God. God has told him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, told him to go in and be the instrument through whom he's going to deliver them. And then what he's going to do is he says, well, who am I going to say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Now, what does I am mean? That's like such a weird name, right? This is that name, Yahweh. The, the Jews don't put a vowel point to, but Justine always does because we did a sermon one time and she went, we should recall him Yahweh because that's the personal name of God that he gave us. And what Yahweh means is, I'm there. I was there before, I'll be there in the future, and I'm here with you right now. I'm always there. I am. I am. Not... I'm somewhere else. I am always right now with you. And so God said to Moses, say to these people, Israel, the Lord, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. See, it's God himself who says, calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and I'm going to remember throughout all generations. Now, as the New International Commentary, the New Testament puts it, and I, I love the way they say this, he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. His covenant relationship with these patriarchs is everlasting and also personal. It's not, I was the God of Abraham who died and is now non-existent. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. I am the God right now of these people. And they are with me. Which is to say, God made us to be eternally one with us. And anybody who reads the Bible know that that's the whole point of it. The Sadducees coming from the perspective that they came from had made up a theology and a thing that was false. The interesting thing is, as is always the case with God, the people who are crying out to him are finding hope. It's not myth. It's not fake. It is the purpose of it. He's calling us into oneness, calling us into relationship for eternity. We get this little moment of time to make a decision about that. But it's for the rest of eternity. I don't know why that's not working. Maybe a battery. Look, you've got to be a person who's building a house, who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. Then, when floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anybody who hears and doesn't obey, now this is what technically this is about, but I want you to go with me here. Anybody who hasn't built their theology on the rock of what is true and then acted upon that. See the fullness of what's being said here? You gotta build your, you gotta build your life on the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. You gotta build your life on who Jesus actually is, and then you have to be responsive to who he actually is. Not your definition of him, but who he actually is. And when you do that, if you don't do that, you're like a person who builds the house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it collapses into a heap of ruins. Now, the Lord's gonna do something now, I hope, that's gonna be super important. Because here's what he's just said to us. Theology is important. Okay, how do I learn theology? Do I have to go to seminary? You know, where do I get it from then? Well, you can read your scriptures every day. That's really good. And that'll get you a long ways, but it still won't get you all the way. I want you to think about this for a second here. Which way do you think you can learn theology better? As an abstract principle from a book or a teacher, or because I applied it to my actual life and it made a real difference? I told you before that when I went to seminary, I had had a period of time between college and seminary. And in that period of time, I actually was doing tons of ministry. I was a businessman, I wasn't a pastor. I was a businessman that was doing tons of ministry in my life, tons. I, that's, I, was, I was working and ministering and that's what I did. And as I was ministering, I was coming across certain issues and so on, that when I went to seminary, the students who had gone straight from college into seminary, they were learning stuff for a test. Yeah. I wasn't learning it for a test. 
When I was learning about atonement, I was going, man, that guy that I was ministering to a couple of years ago, if I'd have understood this principle, I could have said this to him, and I could have done this with him, and it would have made this difference in his life. Man, this idea of Trinity, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is how that works out in a life that is trying to live the life that God has for us. This is why all three are critical, and that we understand all three, and that we have a personal relationship with all three in a unique fashion with all three and with the one. See it? This wasn't, this theology was not abstract knowledge to me. It was real. And God is doing that with every person in this church through something that we're already doing, which is really the backbone of the church. I've always said, God always said, the backbone of the church needs to be prayer. And a long time ago, I said, God, I am not going to start one more prayer ministry at seven o'clock in the morning that we promote really well and about a quarter of the population comes to for the first couple of weeks and then it dies this long, slow, horrible two-year death. <laughs> I do not want that. I want a prayer ministry that lasts. It doesn't just last, but it multiplies. And he gave me the idea of threefolds. And that was to be with people that you were talking to. And Jenny, you were more and... Chris Weber were my two first two, three full partners we did over the phone. And we would talk every day. Not every day, excuse me, once a week. But remember that? Then we would talk, and we would talk about what was going on and what's God doing and what are we supposed to be. And then we would pray for each other. And it was very strongly that. And this is what he gave us. Now, I want to show you something, because many of you are in threefolds already, but even then... Do you understand what a threefold is? And if it's working for you, it's okay. Do whatever you want to do. But I just want to show you what my threefold looks like. So threefold guys, come on up. Okay? Now, uh, so we've got Jeff Stevens, Joel Pelly, and Kevin Prowlis. Okay? So nice intergenerational one here. Okay? And we've got these three guys, these four guys. And, and, and as I always say, with three women, even if one doesn't show up, two women can talk to each other fine. If you just have three guys and one doesn't show up, two guys, it doesn't, it doesn't last. Okay? But if you've got three guys, there's usually enough going on that it, it works. So one of us won't be there, but a lot of times all four of us are there. So now when we're there, we do this really simple little thing. Okay? What's a threefold look like? Now, the first thing is we usually start off on something super spiritual. I want you to understand. Super spiritual. For example, here's what we will be talking about probably on Tuesday. Has anybody seen Thor, the latest movie? Not yet. You've already seen it. Okay, now I would start by saying a super spiritual important thing, and here's what it would be. It is my opinion that the reason why Thor is so good is because the genre is running out of gas. We're tired of seeing people be serious about saving the universe when we've seen it so many times. And so now we're having to start poking fun at it. We're having to, and that is undermining its very purpose and reason. I just said that to someone. You just like said yesterday. that to someone. See? And so this would God's spark. God's working in you, man. This would spark the first 15 minutes. Now, now I would say that the genre is running out of gas, to which Joel would say. Oh, I got, I got nothing for that. Really? Absolutely <laughs> not. It's not I, running out of yeah, gas. That's what I, but I thought Joel would say is, is you're wrong. Where's my you were, you're not a nerd. You don't understand. He says that. He says that all Do the time to me. No, you're wrong. You don't understand. He's a big fan of this stuff. He's already seen Thor. <laughs> I have seen Thor. No, I actually thought that's true. That's really good. Yeah, that's a see? good point. See? It is a good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no spoiler. And I want to tell you, like, Jeff, huh. is, Jeff is really nice, and he really likes me. So he would say, that's a really good point that you made. And then he would add in his own thoughts. 
Which would probably just be I haven't really been watching much of these superhero movies recently because they've kind of been running out of steam. No! See? <laughs> See? <laughs> and Kevin would say, you guys are hopelessly out of touch. <laughs> It, it, it works better. It works better when it comes from each one of us and isn't narrated by Kurt. <laughs> we it's, don't it's have more organ- time. It's more organic that it's way. It's more yeah. organic. This is absolutely true. Yeah. Okay. So this is what we do for the first ten to twenty minutes. Hour, an hour. Hour. Okay. It hour and a half. We do about an hour and a half. Okay. And then at some point in time, one of us, usually me, but one of us will say, "Okay, let's go around." You know, uh, who's up? And we'll say, Joel, tell us about your life. And then we'll literally just go around the table. And I'm not going to make you do all of that. Because, well, you know, usually you tell us about things that are so private. And so I would never embarrass you. Like, Yeah, what's it like being a cyborg? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I think, I, I think that's true. But I think it's more of a um, what's going on right now. And, and you know, it's a, right. things that are good, things that are bad, things that I'm working on, things that um, struck me from the sermon or... Something we talked about months ago that comes up now, or has yeah. come to fulfillment or fruition now, and, and has a purpose. How difficult uh, my boss is. Yeah, very difficult. Right. <laughs> He's working at the. I work at the now. church. So, so awkward. <laughs> so awkward. So so now watch when when he does that. Now watch. This is one of the beautiful things about it. The first thing is the relationship is the glue. You gotta be friends, and you'll become friends. And, you, and people become friends with people you never think you'd become friends with. Once you hear somebody's story, you fall in love with them. When you fall in love with them, you can establish a relationship. But then the second thing is, is we're going into ministry is the purpose. That's why we're here. And what we're here is, is he'll tell us about good and bad and all this kind of stuff. And as that's happening, if he says something that sparks something in one of us, then we'll speak into that in a ministry way. We don't impose upon them. We use Julie's rule, which is you never get to tell somebody what to do, but you can tell them about what worked for you. And so we'll minister one to another as we're going around. And so sometimes you're being ministered to, sometimes you're being the one that ministers. Sometimes one of us has nothing going on that's, that's bad, and so they're ministering. Other times they've got, they're the only one that's got something going on. See what I mean? So it just moves around, and we go around the table, and we have our discussion like this. And then, now understand something, we're in public restaurants, okay, Red Robin, Baitong, things up there in that Microsoft, in that window up there, different restaurants up there. And what'll happen is, is that at the end of this time, now the restaurant's crowded, it's 5.30 at night or 6 o'clock by this time, and so the restaurant's got a lot of people in it and everything else, and what we will do is, is we will say, okay, now what do you want to have prayed for at the end of it? So it's just three elements. We just talk and relate, then we talk about our lives and minister and talk, and then at the end of it, we go, what do you want prayed for? And he'll say what he wants prayed for. And he'll say, and then we pray, the guy to, will say, we're going to the left today. And then so like, I'm listening to what he's saying because I'm going to have to pray for him. And then he's got it. Otherwise, you don't listen to what they want prayed for. And then, but you see, you go around and then what we'll do, and, and I'm talking about, we may pray, it blows me away, but five, seven, we've prayed as long as 10 minutes in a public restaurant, eyes closed, praying for one another. 10 minutes. We've never had anybody come up and say anything bad to us. Not one person has been offended by it. Not one person has been put off by it. Nothing bad. What we do is we just sit there and we pray as long and as hard as much as we need to and we go around the table and then we give each other big hugs and we go. Okay? Now, 
I don't know what your threefold looks like, and if it's working, do what you keep doing. But if you're not in a threefold, or if you're in a threefold that isn't doing this, look at the pattern right now. But here's why I'm talking about this today. Because there's something missing from the threefolds. And I'm going to call, you weren't in the threefold at this time, and there was a different configuration we were meeting over at, um, I remember the time when we did this, but we were meeting, what was what's the yeah, name? Panera. Panera Bread. Okay, so we're at Panera Bread, and there's a third thing. And here's what happened. We were starting to do this discipleship app, you know, that you've heard about. We've been beta testing for this company and all this and everything else. And what I did was I said, there's great relationship and there's ministry so people are growing. But it seems to me like we could be adding in an element of theology bit by bit. It's not six weeks of theological crash course. It's a little bitty moment. A little bitty concept. We were in, for example, if you guys remember, the module on forgiveness. And there was like six or seven different aspects of forgiveness that this module went into. And we just did one each time, and we did it for like three or four times. And what we did is, is we literally just took, at that point I was bringing my computer, because now it's all on the phone. But I'd bring my computer, and we would do the module, and it would take us 10 minutes to do. But here's what happened. When we were now talking about the things of our life, and I remember vividly a couple of conversations which, but, but, but uh, somebody talking about their boss, for example, and saying, you know what? Not only this boss said something to me, and I just realized that that actually came from what another boss had said to me that I've never forgiven them for. I've never forgiven them for that. And I'm holding myself in bondage because of what we learned in the module. And I'm holding myself in bondage by not forgiving him. And it's the reason why when this boss does something to me, they're not doing the same thing, but it's bugging me because of what's happening over here in the cigarette bondage. It's still got its hooks in me. And you see what happened right here? That's a theological truth. But it played out in a practical way, in a real way, in a way that was digestible in the moment. Thank you, guys. So here's what I want to do. This all comes from this, this group that we've been working with that has all this research and so on about where people get stuck and everything else. And here's the deal. They are now just starting to release it nationwide. And they have done something for us that is unique. They are allowing us, because of threefolds and because we only want something that lasts about seven minutes is all. We don't want it to last a long time because we don't want to make the whole threefold about theology. The threefold needs to be about our lives with theology interjected. Do you see it? So it takes about seven minutes and we design, literally, we design pages that take about seven minutes from their material. And they're letting us do this because we've been such a part of everything that they're doing. And the bottom line is I need you to do something now. I need you to pull out your phones, okay? Or whatever you've got, phablets or whatever. Pull out your phone. And if you remember, we had some Wi-Fi tech problems with last time we did it. We think we fixed them, so you should be able to go through Wi-Fi, but you can get to it by cellular too. And here's what I need you to do. Even if the last time you downloaded the Glue app, you still need to go to text 797979 and text the word Lake Sam. Okay, so you, you send it to 797979 and, and then put the word Lake Sam in it, even if you have the app. You got to do that, okay? There's two other ways to do it. You got an email link 
If you want to do it, not even have to do the texting thing. You got an email from Chantel earlier today, just about an hour ago, from me, I guess it is. And there's a link in it, you can just push that link. If you have the Glue app already, it's going to take you to a page that looks just like that. Okay? If you don't have the app already, then you're going to have to say, there's going to be another link in there too, and you're going to have to say, download the app. Okay? Now, there are people here that are here to help you. So if you're having problems with this, raise your hands, and Jeff and Becca are going to be helping people do this. But most everybody should have the Glue app, not the Reveal app, but the Glue app on their phone, and this is taking us to that. Now, just raise your hands and tell me, how many people right now are at that page? How many people are not at that page right now? Downloading? Okay, so I'm going to do a quick little tap dance. Okay. Okay. Now, the one thing I need you to do is, when you go to your Glue app, you need to make sure at the very top it says Lake Sam Church. Because it may say personal or other things, and then you just swipe right or swipe left on the little bar where it says Lake Sam Church. You got to go to the Lake Sam Church one that has love God on the image right there. Do you, get, do you see it? You got to have that image on your phone. What? It might look a oh, you're, you're already in it. You're, so go back and help Becca, would you? Okay, go ahead and see what she's got. Yes, Eric, go ahead. The next slide, some of you have already pushed on that thing and it remembered it by a cookie, and so it'll take you to the next slide, which is this one right here. Okay, that's right. Now the thing that I want you to do is tap on finding my identity. Okay, are we there? Here's the, here's the screen that you wanna be looking at, right there, front stage, backstage. Are you looking at it on your phones? How many people are looking at it on their phones? Raise your hands. How many people are not looking at it? Trying to get to it. Okay, let me give you another second, okay? You can do this, by the way, but let me go back in the steps. I want you to see it, okay? You go to Lake Sam Church at the top. It says, love God. Tap on the love God picture, okay? And then tap on... When you tap on Love God Picture, it brings this up, and then tap on Finding My Identity. Yes? I'm just going to, um, if you hadn't downloaded the app first, and you clicked the link, it will take you to download the app. Once you downloaded the app, then go back out to the link and click the link again. Again. And then go into the app. Do you hear what we're saying? Because of the way they did the content for us, it's just us. So you've, you've got, to have the, you got to have the app installed, and then you've got to download it again. Now hang in there, we're not done, and, and there's going to be a really cool thing we're going to do, but I get that this is a little tech moment, okay? And everybody hates tech moments, okay? But just hang in there for one second. Okay, now, you get to Finding My Identity, and then you click on that, and now, here's one of these one-page deals that we've designed that take about seven minutes. What? Oh, at the bottom of, excuse me, at the bottom of this page, you gotta hit, you gotta click Finding My Identity, you're right. And then there's gonna be one more page that's gonna say Start the Program. And then click Start the Program, okay? Now, keep messing with your phones, but I want you to see something here. We're gonna walk right through the app real quick. 
right, through the lesson. Integrity, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a state of being complete or whole and the quality of being honest and fair. In other words, integrity is about your life being aligned so that so aligned so who you are backstage when no one is looking is the same as you are front stage when the spotlight's on you. At its core, integrity is about becoming ever more what Christ intended for you. Join pastor and author Lance Witt as he challenges you to consider if your front stage and backstage worlds are aligned. Now here's what I want to do. You can click on this on your phone and it'll play, but I'm going to play it right from here. And I just want to show you, it, right now, you, everybody's on the app, it's the beginning of your threefold, you've, you've brought this up, you've read that little thing, and some of them have videos in them, some of them have other things. Only some of them have little videos, okay? But what we're going to do is, you need to watch this video because in about three minutes, we're going to break up into groups, and you're going to discuss what's in the video, just like it was a threefold. Because I want you to feel what it feels like when you do one of these pages, how quick it happens, and so on. So right now, if everybody has the app, it, we're about 10 seconds into a threefold is all. Because everybody took out their phones, clicked on it, it takes you right to the last page you're on. Okay? So here comes the video. All of us live life on two stages. Think for just a moment about any auditorium that you've been in. There's a front stage and there's a backstage. And the front stage is what I call your public world. Now, in the front stage, the spotlight is on us. It's where we do what we do with skill and it's where we get noticed. And for some of us, it's always on the front stage where we find our identity and our significance. But you have a backstage. That's your private world. That's the world of your soul. No one's allowed there. There's no spotlight there. It's usually dark. It's usually messy. That's our soul. And that's where this issue of identity gets settled is on the backstage. Because the Christian life is not only about the front stage. It's not just about behavior modification, about learning to do certain things and knowing a few Bible verses. It's about who you are in the core of your identity. You see, if all you focus on is the front stage, you think it's all about your performance and you think if you do everything just right and everybody likes you and you, you use the right language that God will love you. But you see, this issue of identity goes so much deeper than that. You know, we hear all about this abundant life and all of us want to have the abundant life that Jesus promised in John chapter 10. But for some of us, the voices from our backstage, the voices from our past, from deep inside of us keep us defeated. Voices of shame and guilt, condemnation and doubt, feelings of worthlessness that keep us defeated. And I remember this moment in scripture at the baptism of Jesus where the voice out of heaven from his heavenly father said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. Think about that. The perfect son of God still needed that sense of affirmation and the belief in his identity that he was connected to his heavenly father. You know, later on in the New Testament, the Bible will say that you and I, that our spiritual address has changed, that when we become Christ followers, that now we are in Christ. That little phrase is repeated 130 times in the New Testament. And that little phrase is the treasury of your identity and your worth and your value. The Apostle Paul would say it like this in Romans 8, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, 
but you receive the spirit of sonship. You're in the family. And because we are, Paul says, now that we can cry out to God as Abba, Father, it's an intimate word that's almost like calling God our daddy. But Paul's point is you and I are in the family and our identity is being part of the family. Your worth is not based on what you know or what you own, but it's on who knows you and who owns you. Now this has really practical implications because when you get your identity settled, you don't have to strive any longer to get God to like you. He already does. It's not about your performance. You know, I kind of grew up with this script in my life, which was work hard, do good, be responsible, and that's how you get loved. Well, I transferred that script not only to life, but to my relationship with God. And for me, it's been a lifelong journey learning to understand that my identity is in Christ. And that when you get that, it brings freedom and joy. You no longer live out of the ought and performance, out of drivenness and guilt, but now I can live out of gratitude and now I can join God in the adventure of serving him, not based on getting him to try to love me and like me, but on gratitude because he already does and he made me part of his family. So walk today out of that identity. Just another second to read this quote, the Christian life is not about behavior modification. It's about, uh, it's about who you are at the core of your identity. When you get your identity settled, you no longer have to strive to get God to like you. He already does. You no longer have to live out of ought to performance, but out of, out of drivenness and guilt, you can now live out of gratitude for who you are in Christ. And then there's a couple of questions to just sort of start a bit of a discussion about it in which you would do. So can you see this? Your whole threefold is going to take you a few minutes. I mean, this part of it. And then you go into talking about other things, but what you'll find out is everything that was in there is going to be in the conversation. You're going to be going, oh yeah, that's right. And so step by step, little grain by little grain, God is going to be building in you this thing. Now here's what we're going to do just to end this right. I'm not going to go threefold. It's going to take too long. But, I'm, but we're going to just, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to three or four people that are right by you. Please, if you're, if you're on the outlier, find your way into something. But I want you just three or four people, turn, and I want you to discuss the second question. When you get your identity settled, you no longer have to strive to get God to like you. He already does. You no longer have to live out to performance and so on. With what parts of this statement do you agree or disagree, and what difference might this make in your life? You see it? So I want you to just turn to each other and just do this. And we're going to do this for, we're not even going to take five minutes on it. But I want you to see how much you can do in five minutes on this. Okay? If there's just two of you together, just go ahead and do it, the two of you. Okay?
All right. Go ahead and wrap up. Do you see how the question leads organically into the discussion about how you're doing? You're talking about identity, and you're talking about your past, and you're talking about your life, and you're talking about this kind of stuff, and that just leads naturally and organically into how's your life going? What's going on in it? And you're gonna, it's even the topic that you bring up is gonna be tinged by or flavored by this discussion that you just had. You see that? It's a very, very natural way to get into a discussion. A lot of threefolds come to us and they say, we don't know what to talk about. Well, I tried to show you what we talk about, but I'm trying to show you something else. We would do, the, where we would put that is, we would talk about Thor, because we're gonna talk about Thor, okay? But after Thor, we would take a few minutes and we would do this little, this quick little section, which we will do this Tuesday. We'll do this exact same section. And then we'll, that'll start a discussion. And out of that discussion will come people talking about their lives. You see how natural it is? And then we'll pray for each other. And like I say, what's going to happen is we do this one year, two years, three years, four years. How many people are in a threefold right now that's been going on for, say, over eight years? How many people? Okay, just years. You do that over that length of time, you are going to be different. It, your theology is going to be changed because bit by bit, piece by piece, you let God not just give it to you in one big fire hose, but in a little bit that you were able to apply to your life. I get how that works. So let's seal this and just take these two cups in front of you. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift up this lower cup in which is the life that we've led. And what we realize is, God, is that we have let our context define our theology. We've let our circumstances define who you are. That's not okay. We recognize that we have broken our lives by getting who you are wrong based on what's happening to us. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we understand the word and we will be doing the word, but we'll be doing it in community, in a threefold. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, help us. Help us to start living you. In Jesus' name, take your finger and just break that, knowing that God has so much more for us and we haven't entered into the keys. We haven't taken that car out for a spin. We haven't lived in the joy of the ride that God has for us. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, Jesus, thank you for healing us. Thank you for making us whole. And we take this cup right now saying, God, heal us in Jesus' name. And now we lift up this cup in which is this life, this gorgeous, incredible, full, rich, multifaceted, glorious life. And we say, oh God, let that become our life. In Jesus' holy and precious name, take this cup together. If you are not in a threefold, email me. You need to be in a threefold. I can't imagine being in this church and not being in a threefold. 
If you've had three falls that haven't gone well in the past and that's what you're concerned about, tell me, okay? I'm not in a three-fold because of blah, 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 and I'm gonna do everything I can to overcome blah, blah, blah and get you into the other one, okay? Do me one other favor, please. Try this. If you're at home and you're watching and you tried this, I hope, with your friends and so on and whoever you're watching with your family, I'm asking you, please, take this app and try this in your threefold. I'm telling you, once you get the rhythm of it, it's going to add a dimension to your threefold, which is going to make it much richer. We have a unique opportunity because of the work we've been doing to do something that's going to help us immensely, gonna get us into a car that is gonna change our lives dramatically. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, if you have trouble, oh, if you have trouble today and you wanna talk to somebody, that's awesome. Becca, Joe, and Jeff will be in the back. Chantel too, they'll be in the back and if you wanna say, hey, my app's still not working right, let us fix your app and get it working right, right now, so you don't have to try and do that on a threefold. You don't wanna be doing tech stuff on a threefold. Don't leave frustrated, okay? I love you. Thank you for letting me take a little extra time today. This is, I can't tell you, but I really think that this is as important as anything we've done in this building in a long time. I think what it's going to lead to is going to be very, very significant. So Lord, in Jesus' name, do your will. Get us to try it. Get us to own it. Get us to understand it. Get us to move in it. God, raise us up evermore into who you really are, standing on it, living from it, living in it, being that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go Hawks. Love you guys.